Do you ever feel like you're always on? What do you do when you need a moment to chill? How do you like to hit the reset button to get ready for what's next? These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nothing but nonstop hustle all the time. With working from home and trying to stay in touch with friends and family, a million pressing social issues, and an expectation to always be on 24-7. Sometimes you just need a moment to turn off and hit reset. That's when you reach for Coors Light. It's made to chill. My moment to chill is watching baseball, especially when the White Sox are on. I like to have a Coors Light beside me. It's a great beer to have watching the games as it's cool and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. And even the mountains on my cans turn blue telling me that it's time to hit reset. Sit back, relax, and hunker down for an evening of White Sox baseball. So when it's time for you to unwind, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light and the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Must be 21 years or older to enjoy. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And as always, celebrate responsibly. Listen, you hear that? That's the sound of nothing. And nothing is what you'll pay for medium fries when you buy any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich. It's crispy, juicy, tender, all-white meat chicken with crinkle-cut pickles on a buttery potato bun. Mmm. Buy one, and we'll hook you up with a free medium fries. That's like zero zilch zip. So try any Mickey D's new crispy chicken sandwich and get a medium fries for nothing. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Prices and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer or combo meal. Welcome to the Sox Machine 2020 postseason postgame show. Here to break it all down, analyzing the in-game decisions and key moments, are your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine postseason postgame show. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and this episode will not be a happy one, unfortunately. Despite having a 3-0 lead, the Chicago White Sox lose Game 3 of the Wild Card Series, by a final score of 6-4 to four, and a weird combination of missed opportunities offensively and poor pitching in the 4th and 5th innings, especially with two outs that will make this White Sox team scratch their heads and wonder what could have been on their flight back to Chicago. This also closes the chapter for the 2020 season, so why wait around? Let's also talk about the upcoming offseason and the challenges ahead for Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams. Joining me to recap Game 3 is my tag team partner from the pregame show, Greg Nix, and the managing editor of SoxMachine.com, it's Jim Margulis. And hello, gentlemen. This is a tough pill to swallow. But Jim, it's not like the White Sox didn't have a chance to win this game and move on today. Yeah, it was a it was a complicated game, and I think uh, White Sox fans who had missed out on post season baseball for the last 12 years might not be missing anymore. They might be done with it for this year. Uh, it, it was the kind of game where even if they advanced, I was thinking like, can I tolerate two more games of this? You know, after the Giolito and Keiko starts is, is this how it's always going to be uh, whenever those two aren't in the game? And especially once, once crochet went down, he was no longer an option. Like what happens if they win this game? 
Uh, so I guess in that sense, you know, if you really just don't like blood pressure being uh, inflated and and you prefer to have your evenings not be angry at the end of your evenings, then maybe this is a, a net positive. But otherwise, it's a uh, it's unfortunate. It wasn't for lack of effort. It certainly wasn't a lack of effort from Rick Renteria. Just things got complicated. Yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. And uh, Greg, I guess as far as starting the recap on game three, we talked a lot about as far as how short of a leash Dane Dunning had to start this game for the Chicago White Sox. And there are a lot of White Sox fans that are listening to this. Uh, there's a lot of White Sox fans currently on social media, probably in the comment section on SoxMachine.com that are not happy with Rick Renteria uh, as far as how he handled this game. And it, you know, starting with the first inning, a bit of a, revisionist history because when Dunning got pulled, I had a quick Twitter poll asking, is this the right move? And 70% out of like 500 people said, yes, this is the right move. And we get into the sixth inning and people were complaining that maybe you should have let Dunning in. So let's start there. After Dane Dunning gave up the two hits with runners on the corners and two outs, how did you think, how do you feel about Renteria pulling Dane Dunning then and then going to Gary Crochet? I think it was exactly the right call. I mean, it's the one that we talked about in the pregame show and I tweeted it when it happened. I think uh, that was Dunning's leash was if you get in trouble, you're coming out of the game because you're our, maybe our best starting option just in terms of the rhythm of the game and, and what everybody's used to, but in terms of the pitching totem pole for this game, you know, he's probably the sixth best pitcher that Renteria was going to use um, theoretically. So I, I really liked it and it worked. Crochet got out of the jam. Crochet got a strikeout on the first batter of the next inning. And then he started feeling pain, you know, and, and that's super unfortunate. I think all of us watching were, you know, sort of assuming the worst as soon as he, seem to get hurt and come out of the game. And even if it's not the worst, it, it sort of threw all of Renteria's plans into a garbage disposal right there in the second inning. And so, you know, I think he, there are some things you can quibble about uh, with the way Rick Renteria managed this game. But I think in terms of that decision, it was absolutely the right one. Do you agree, Jim? Are you satisfied with the way that Renteria handled the first inning by having the quick hook on Dane Dunning and then going to Garrett Crochet? I would say it's defensible. It's not my favorite brand of managing to watch. Uh, I don't mind if a starter ends up digging a little bit of a hole. Um, just just because, just from a fan standpoint, from watching it, just seems like it does introduce the potential for feeling like it's a panicked managing game, even if you know there were plans behind it in a real thought process and it wasn't like just uh, completely uh, seat-of-the-pants type uh, decision-making. Uh, but you know, when crochet came in and he, you know, struck out two batters, like Greg said, like, okay, that's, you know, right now the plan to get through the first third of the game is still in motion, still intact. And when I saw his velocity, when I saw the first pitch fouled back at 97, I was like, huh, 97. I haven't recalled seeing that from a, uh, crochet fastball. And then the next pitch was like, you know, 98, 96. And I was thinking like, okay, uh, you know, this is normally bad, but maybe if Rentry is saying like, okay, you're a starter now, you have to think back to your Tennessee days. Uh, you're, you're thinking like a starter, you're thinking about lasting three innings and, and conserving some energy. Let's see how you work at, say, like 90% of your velocity. See how that goes. And 
then once the trainer came out, like, oh, nope, it was the bad one. It was, <laughs> and, uh, that's when, it, yeah, the, the sinking feeling comes to your stomach, like, oh, all right, so change of plans and just, yeah, the White Sox bullpen is deep enough, or maybe, in, you know, now it's past tense, was deep enough to where it seemed like somebody should have been able to give an easy inning or maybe like, you know, a, a nine pitch or 11 pitch inning and be able to buy themselves a second inning. Like Matt Foster was great at that all year. Aaron Bummer has done that in the past. Cody Hoyer. I mean, he, he pitched uh, the day before, so maybe it was unreasonable to ask it from him. Uh, but, you know, maybe he should have, but at least like one of these pitchers should have been able to do it. And nobody did. Everybody looked bad. Matt Foster looked like a rookie for the first time in his career. So that I think is why you saw the, you know, the, the backtracking on your poll. I'm glad you took that poll because I think that's a good uh, point of evidence in terms of just how the, the, the tenor of fan response was going. And then that's why, you know, I, I was in my normal position of defending Rick Renteria and uh, explaining that he's not a complete idiot to a lot of uh, White Sox fans, but uh, yeah, so I'm glad you, you captured that number because it felt like I didn't hear any complaints when Crochet got the strikeout to end the inning uh, and, and right. get through the first. I heard a lot, yes, see, that was the right move. And then Crochet gets lifted out of the game. And then the next point that White Sox fans are pointing to asking, why is Aaron Bummer coming into the game in the second inning? Why Bummer to replace Crochet? Any thoughts, Jim? I think it's you know, just uh, maybe with Bummer having the uh, bicep issue and not quite looking like his old self that he wasn't going to expect Bummer to carry like two innings of high leverage work. There were probably other relievers better suited for that. So, you know, when it, when it came to like, say, Bummer versus Carlos Rodon, who doesn't really have any experience in the bullpen, you know, when, when you compare it to the, his entire career, and maybe isn't the guy to just start warming up to pitch immediately. Uh, you know, maybe you wanted to prove a reliever and thought Bummer would be the guy to calm the game down. Maybe you get that in an easy inning and then, you know, turn it over to a second inning if possible, but he only threw half his pitches for strike. So that backfired as well. But I, I thought using a reliever of some kind, maybe Matt Foster, maybe, you know, and, and maybe Evan Marshall, given that he's also coming off the injured list, would have been the way to do it. But little did we know the right call was Jimmy Cordero. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> Looking back, I'm laughing because Jimmy Cordero had the least eventful inning out of the White Sox relievers, and he threw two and two-thirds innings in the game, too, and no White Sox fan uh, wanted to see Jimmy Cordero to pitch in a decisive game three. But going back as far as the bullpen decision-making, so Aaron Bummer comes in, and he faces a little trouble in the third inning, and Cody Hoyer comes in, and there's bases loaded with one out, and he's able to get out of that inning uh, with the big strikeout to end the threat and keep the White Sox ahead. And in the fourth inning, Cody Hoyer gives up a two-run shot to rookie catcher Sean Murphy. Great swing by Sean Murphy. And there's nobody on. There's two outs, and the White Sox are leading 3-2. to two. And Greg Renteria goes to Carlos Rodon with nobody on. And... Yeah. Where do you want to start with the Carlos Rodon recap as far as uh, getting the White Sox into trouble by loading the bases and not getting anyone out? Yeah, I think it's it's pretty unfortunate. I mean, I have sort of since Rodon came back, I've sort of been quietly questioning, you know, uh, why the White Sox are viewing him as sort of this 
potential linchpin or, or, you know, veteran ballast to the bullpen when he hasn't really been a very good pitcher for a few years. Um, and so I think in an ideal layout of this game, he doesn't pitch at all. Right. But once crochet gets hurt, then, then you're saying, saying, okay, he's probably the next man up. And so I would think that, you know, you would want to start him with a clean inning. I mean, I know the bases were empty, but I, I would, I don't know. There's something about him being a starter and, and sort of being able to go out there for some warm-up pitches and uh, get it in his head for a little while that he's coming in. I, I think I would have left Hoyer in, especially because, you know, it wasn't a terrible pitch that uh, that Murphy hit out. He just got, you know, he went for a pitch out on the outside corner and pretty low and just sort of golfed it out. So I would have tried to push Hoyer a little bit more. I think this was sort of where... Um, in addition to in Bummer coming in after Crochet, I think I, I think that's sort of where Renteria lost the thread a little bit, just in terms of uh, what he was prioritizing in who he was bringing in and and what the game scenarios were. And I think you also saw that play out when he had Rodon intentionally walk. Um, I forget who it was. Olson? Chad Pinder. Chad Pinder, yeah. right? Chad Pinder to get to Olson. Uh, yeah, I think I think you also saw it there where he was just sort of um, outthinking himself a little bit. Yeah, Jim, and and let's go to that situation because this is a this is where everybody everybody on talk radio in Chicago is going to point to is that you have the lead, and Marcus Simeon just hit a double, and it was a good job by Adam Engel to quickly field that and prevent Tommy Listella from scoring for first base to tie the game. So you have runners on second and third. There's two outs. First base is open. And you just call for the intentional walk so you can replace Carlos Rodon with Matt Foster. What are your thoughts about that decision by Renteria to purposely intentionally walk Chad Pender to remove Rodon from the game? Yeah, I think... I don't have a problem with Rodon coming in the way he came in. Um... I think where it doesn't quite line up is that he wasn't allowed to face Pinder. Uh, there, you know, there wasn't the comfort. I mean, Pinder this year, he's been a decent major league player, but I mean, he hit 232 this year, sub 300 OBP, you know, better against uh, lefties and righties. But, you know, still, if, if Rodon is the guy who's coming in in a postseason game, it should be the kind of hitter that he should be able to face, especially if you think that, being a starter and being a, a veteran, he should be able to get acclimated to uh, you know a situation as he throws more pitches and, and being it for the long haul. So to intentionally walk him and load the bases just to get the three batter minimum over with, it, it struck me as like, well, Rodon's in the bullpen because he gives you multiple innings. But if you're intentionally walking a batter to get his three batter minimum over with, then he's not really a long reliever either. And he's not a high leverage guy. So it felt like at the moment he was brought in, just nobody had a firm idea of what his purpose was in the bullpen. And maybe that's where just the, maybe just the cross purposes or, or, or the uh, intent of bringing him in was uh, quickly evaporated once he realized what he wrote down looked like, or the confidence he had wrote down with every pitch he threw diminished. But that's why, you know, when our, pregame discussions on Sox Machine, uh, writing about just the pitcher matchups. I didn't really want Rodon to be in a situation, a game that counted, because yeah, I kind of look at him as a pitcher who's going to be non-tendered after the season. I'm not sure if that's the case, because the White Sox have a hard time giving up on their guys. But 
know, mm-hmm. he, he very well could. And so I just wouldn't want to see the game fall apart on a guy who was going to be non-tendered. Like that's just how, yeah, that's the kind of how the decision making struck me. Like Matt Foster, if he, you know, he, he kind of uh, squandered that just by pitching, you know, throwing non-competitive pitches, but he's going to be around next year. He earned that opportunity to get that out. Um, and if nothing else, hopefully he learns from it. You know, Rodon might not be around if he fails. Like, I guess, you know, Renteria can use him as a human shield a bit because I think people would have blamed Rodon before Renteria not being able to get one out of three batters out. But still, just it felt like there was a little bit of he lost the conviction he had for bringing Rodon in for the purpose that he was supposed to serve. And that makes me think like it was a bad idea in the first place. Yeah, I think there's a trust issue now because. I th- was it during the Marcus Simeon at bat? Yeah, it was like 3-1 against Simeon. Renteria goes out to the mound to meet with Carlos Renan, not Don Cooper. It's Renteria. And when he went out, my first thought was, Jimmy Gregg, like, you can't remove Rodon because he hasn't faced three batters yet. So there had to be some type of, I don't know, pep talk on the mound to try to pump up Carlos Rodon. And then a couple of pitches later... Simeon doubles and Renteria doesn't even think twice, intentionally walks Pinder and yanks Rodon out of the game. I think this is the end for Carlos Rodon's era, the saga, if you want to call it, with the Chicago White Sox. And I'm going to go back and listen to our 2014 uh, Major League Baseball draft podcast and listen to how excited we were that Carlos Rodon fell to the Chicago White Sox. And, And Jim, I... I'm with you. I think this is how the Carlos Rodon era ends with the White Sox. And uh, I guess in 2014, uh, if I told myself then, hey, Carlos Rodon will pitch in a playoff game for the Chicago White Sox in his career with the White Sox, I think 2014 self would be like, yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Um, But not like this. Not like this, Jim. Yeah, I'm looking up – tweets to see if there's anything of explaining that mound visit to Rodon because that was very confusing. And, and my thought was like, oh, is the trainer with him? You know, something not seeing <laughs> the way that, uh, you know, Rodon reacted. Because normally when that kind of mound visit comes out, it's like something the pitcher winced or shook his arm in a way that's not normal. Um, that would be the the reason to come out middle of a, a sequence, but it didn't. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be something that would be nice to explain, but in the Zoom era conference of uh, or Zoom era of uh, media conferences, I don't think that'll be a question that'll come up during Renteria's time. You know, there's just so much stuff to ask him at the end of a season, and he can't ask Rodon about it either, probably because he's not going to be there. So, yeah, it's, that might be something that goes unsaid or just might be discovered later. That is a good question. So, going into the fifth inning, now the game is tied four to four. Thanks to Yohan Makata stealing a base and Nomar Mazzara uh, coming through with the single. We'll talk a little bit more about the White Sox offense in a moment. But Evan Marshall comes in and he gets two quick outs. And on a check swing against Sean Murphy, it goes against the White Sox. The first base umpire said he checked a swing, so Murphy walks. And that's unfortunate. 0-1 against Tommy Listella. Listella swings and misses, which is going to be strike two. However, Listella makes contact with Yasmani Grandal's glove, and that's catcher's interference. So Listella goes to first base. Now you got runners on first and second at two outs. And then Evan Marshall walks Marcus Simeon, so you have the bases loaded again. And here comes Chad Pinder 
who's terrible in his career with the bases loaded, and he singles, which ends up being the game-winning hit uh, to put Oakland ahead 6-4. to four. And that inning, those two innings, the fourth and fifth innings, I is what obviously crushes the White Sox. They give up four runs in the fifth inning, and they gave up two runs in the fifth, and that's it. That's all Oakland could muster offensively in those innings, but it's obviously a lot of damage in the White Sox bullpen did well outside of those two innings. But overall, the Chicago White Sox pitching staff walked nine batters today, Greg. And it's just so much self-inflicted damage. Is this something that these pitchers are going to have some type of regret on how they performed in game three, knowing that they put so many guys on base? Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think Marshall and Foster will probably be the first ones to take responsibility, especially for not getting the ball over the plate. Uh, Rodon as well. I I don't think any of them are going to say that they pitched well. But, you know, for me, it it sort of comes back to the trade deadline a little bit and even coming into the season where, you know, maybe maybe you could argue during spring training and during summer camp that there was a lot of pitching depth around then guys st- sort of started falling off, but Foster and Hoyer uh, were surprising, as was Marshall a little bit. And you see Bummer and Rodon coming back from the disabled list, and you think like, okay, this is a deep pitching staff. But at the same time, you know, they just didn't have a third starter, and there were plenty of bullpen arms that moved at the deadline. There were plenty of starters that moved out at the deadline that could have helped in a game like today. So I think it sort of came down to a situation, and this is this thought, I guess was coming to me when Foster was sort of missing the zone so badly of like, maybe it wasn't a great idea to come into this game thinking that rookies would be throwing, you know, six to seven innings. Um, Maybe this was, maybe that was ill planning on the, on the part of Rick Hahn, you know, constructing this roster. And, and I think that, you know, Rick Renteria literally pulled every lever he could, but these guys just didn't have it today. And I think, uh, having a a veteran to come in and foster spot um, who you could be a little bit more confident in their nerves that they would hit the zone, I think would have been pretty helpful today, obviously in retrospect, but even at the deadline, I think, uh, I think they just asked a lot of guys who gave them a lot all season, but maybe they pushed them just, you know, one ask too far of all of these guys. But that was the point though. Wasn't it Jim from Rickon when he spoke about not making any moves at the trade deadline that, this was an opportunity for the White Sox to not sacrifice any of the future and kind of see on how far this current roster can take them. Like this is where having Dunning and I hope Crochet is okay and he doesn't need Tommy John and then you lose him for all of 2021. That'd be very White Sox-like. But having four rookies pitch today, Dunning, Crochet, Hoyer, and Foster, that it gives the White Sox and it gives those pitchers an opportunity to learn that they can have lasting impact or they have the ability to stick around in the major leagues. And the White Sox now know what they have in these young pitchers uh, rather than try to push more chips into the middle and try to make the best of 2020. That's always the, I guess, the easy defense mechanism to uh, defend inaction is just saying, well, everybody will benefit from the inaction. Yeah. But 
Although in you know the case of the Phillies, they added a bunch of bullpen uh, guys and somehow got worse. Like it David, did not work out. David Phelps, uh, who you advocated for, not that I'm calling. No, you I didn't. Just... I deleted that from the archives, sir. <laughs> there's no record yeah. of that. Yeah, it goes from a, well, just in, in you know, there's no, no. I mean, he went from uh, having a 2.77 ERA at the Brewers with peripherals to match to having a 12.91 ERA at the Phillies. Yeah, it's terrible. So yeah, just you know, in, in a weird season like this, like. I wouldn't have counted on the bullpen changing the complexion of the pitching staff or maybe even a starter changing the complexion of the rotation too much, just having an extra option. But in a game like this, I think the lack of options weren't the problem. They just all kind of collapsed at the same time. And that's tough to deal with. I think if there's anything, you know, if I were to pound on something, you know, like, you know, maybe not the lack of action at the trade deadline, but I would maybe say like, this is why you use an opener during the regular season just to be accustomed to bullpen games and mixing and matching and borrowing an inning here and a couple innings there and, you know, Renteria not having a whole lot of experience doing so. Uh, you know, again, I don't think this changes it too much uh, just because I think Crochet, you know, he was going to go through the third inning and that was the plan and looked like it was going to be great two batters in. And, you know, that I think causes the pile up no matter what, because, you know, usually with elbow injuries, it's a cumulative thing, not like a one pitch did it. And, uh, you know, if he if he pitched, uh, if he started the game or if he appeared the third inning, maybe it doesn't happen. I'm guessing it happens no matter what. Um, that just causes the issue. If he's like the, the crux of the early pitching um, strategy and he falters and nobody else, like the next three or four pitchers can't pick up where he left off. That's, uh, I think, going to cause a problem no matter what, and even an extra arm doesn't really clarify matters too much. All right, so let's shift over to the offense. Luis Robert waking up big time, now setting the high mark for the farthest home run ever hit by a Chicago White Sox player in the StatCast era, which is awesome, off of Mike Fears, Fires. And uh, Robert went two for five with two RBIs. No Armazara. Hot damn. <laughs> Wakes up. Two for four with two RBIs. Tim Anderson went three for five again. Tim Anderson had nine hits in this postseason. An amazing postseason run for Tim Anderson. He had an awesome series. However, in the first inning, Abreu doubles. Runners on second and third. One out. Aloy Jimenez flies out in the infield. Yohan Makata hits a laser right at the outfielder. Zero runs. Luis Robert hits a home run, but the White Sox get the bases loaded in the second inning, and Jose Abreu grounds out. Bases loaded in the seventh inning, and it's Adam Engel against a lefty. Engel grounds out. First and second, with one out in the eighth inning, Abreu's at the plate, grounds into a double play. In this three-game series, the Chicago White Sox, Jim, were 4-for-27 with runners in scoring position. And man, that harkens back to some conversations we had at the beginning of this 2020 season. And at the end of the game, it just really felt like, man, the Chicago White Sox must have played another game against the Cleveland Indians because this is the same type of feeling I had in those games between the White Sox and Indians that the offense had the opportunity, but they just couldn't get that extra hit. Yeah, there's a little bit of early season Jose Abreu too. I think uh, when you look at some of the at-bats with Runners in scoring position, as you mentioned, Mancata put a good swing on it. Eloy, not really. Like, he was chasing things no. up in the zone. Seemed like he was a little bit anxious to get back in. And eventually, he righted himself with a double, but then his foot couldn't hold up. Uh, Angle, his ground at the second was basically a carbon copy of Abreu's. Uh, off Jake yep. Diekman, 
swung at a good pitch, put a good swing on it, just couldn't elevate it and hit a hard, you know, hard hit grounder uh, by the stat cast definition, just right to the second baseman. But Abreu, yeah, just a couple of weak ground outs, especially the one against Joaquin Sorio, where he was chasing pitches out of the zone. Like, I think he was looking to drive something in the right field, the right center gap, like he normally does. But sometimes when he looks for that pitch, he just gets so fixated on what he can poke that way that uh, he his definition of uh, hittable pitch that way expands by like six inches and puts him in a really bad situation as to where all of a sudden he has to avoid the strikeout or feels like he has to. And then that's why he also is among the lead, league leaders in double plays. So it was just a bad time for the, you know, the, the first weeks of Jose Abreu to show up and, and kind of a, a sad way to end what was a great season for him. And, you know, he had a big hit in the postseason too. Like, so he, he didn't look completely overmatched by the circumstances. It just happened to be a couple of bad bats at the wrong time. Uh, and then just, you know, I think the, the problems with, right-handed batters against uh, right-handed pitchers and, and good right-handed pitchers with stuff, uh, just being able to bully him a little bit, just overpower him up in the zone, be able to get the hard, sw- uh, uh, hard to get the good swings on, on high pitches, um, just all piled up on them. But they had their chances. I mean, uh, the at-bats weren't bad, just the hit tool was lacking. And Greg, we talked about as far as the impact that Aloy Jimenez could have on this game during the pregame show, he did hit a double, but running to second base, he hurt that sprained foot again and had to be pulled for James McCann. Uh, McCann did have a base hit in the ninth inning uh, against Liam Hendricks to, to lead it off and give the White Sox hope that they could possibly tie the game. And it was one for two and McCann did score uh, replacing Jimenez but without Jimenez for having him for like the rest of the game after the third inning, uh, how big of an impact or how big of a blow do you think that was to the White Sox losing Jimenez after the third? I I think it definitely hurt. I mean, in addition to losing Jimenez's bat, which obviously looked good on the double and, and just offered more upside than anybody in the lineup aside from Abreu, I think, um, we probably saw Nomar Mazzara and Adam Angle hit in situations where maybe one of them would have been pinch hit for by McCann. Um, and Mazzara had a pretty good game, but still, you know, took that strikeout to end it, still struck out twice. I think Angle had a good series overall, but sort of going back to what I was saying about the pitching staff, sort of just asking him to do a little bit more than you would expect him to do. Um, and, and sometimes you get lucky and sometimes you don't. And I think in game one, they got lucky, and in games two and three, they got less lucky with him. Um, so, yeah, I think losing Jimenez stinks. It, it definitely took a huge bat out of the lineup and took some of the air out of the lineup, too, especially in the wake of Crochet's injury, I think. Say what you will about momentum, but, you know, when you're leading a playoff game in the second inning and then you lose, you know, this this rookie who could throw 100 miles per hour and is supposed to pitch the next two innings and a DH who just came back and just hit a double, I think, uh, you know, that's that's a part of the mental battle of the game that definitely could have hurt them. Before we go into what's going to be happening this upcoming offseason for the Chicago White Sox, a quick word as far as with the Oakland Athletics. I thought they played a very good series. Uh, some questionable decision-makings, obviously, with Bob Melvin, but this is a very solid team and, you know, they grind out at bats. There's nobody that really scares you as far as in the lineup, but it seems to be a cohesive offensive strategy, Jim. And uh, their next series, they're going up against a division foe, the Houston Astros in the American League Divisional Series. 
How do you like Oakland's chances against Houston? Well, as you mentioned, it's uh, a team that's uh, just they, they add up to something that's a, a good major league team. And even if they're not individually impressive, I think the Astros are a little bit the other way where they have the name brand talent, but it's not really adding up to a whole lot either. And I think Mike fires will be a fascinating uh, figure in all of it. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and the Astros have yeah. shown a uh, little awareness for why people actually hate them <laughs> and what they have to do in order to get people to not hate them. That still eludes them. So I imagine it's going to be extremely irritating, which is why I picked them to win the whole thing. The Astros? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. You want chaos in, in 2020. I, I don't want it. I'm just, it's what mm-hmm. it's, it's apparently what we deserve as, as people. <laughs> Evidently. Yeah, now in the American League, as far as the divisional series, uh, it's divisional matchups. It's the Tampa Bay Rays against the New York Yankees. That will be a fun five-game series. Uh, and it'll be the Houston Astros against the Oakland Athletics. So whoever wins the American League East Showdown and the American League West Showdown uh, will meet each other in the American League Championship Series. And the Atlanta Braves sweep the Cincinnati Reds, who the Reds decided to not score any runs. That was a bold strategy. Uh, so the Reds have been swept and the uh, the Braves move on. Uh, it barely rained in Chicago at all. Uh, however, they postponed the Cubs-Marlins game. So the Cubs and Marlins will play game two on Friday. And if the Cubs win that game, they will play game three on Saturday. However, if the Marlins win that game, uh, they'll be facing the Atlanta Braves in the second round. Currently, the St. Louis Cardinals, last I checked, have a lead against the San Diego Padres. If that holds up, the Cardinals will move on uh, to the next round. Uh, and then uh, I totally forgot as far as who would they be playing. Has that series ended as far as with the Dodgers and Brewers? No, they play later tonight. Yep. That series will end tonight. I'll make that <laughs> prediction. Uh, poor Milwaukee. Um, nothing's going right for them. Uh, but, yeah, the Cardinals hold on. Uh, they could be playing against the Los Angeles Dodgers in the second round. So that will be your American League and National League Divisional Series. And uh, I think it's still worthwhile to, to watch the postseason. But as White Sox fans are listening to this, if you're already looking ahead to the offseason on what moves the Chicago White Sox uh, could make, uh, why not start thinking about that? Uh, this offseason, though, is going to be a bit unpredictable. Uh, and there are some challenges for the White Sox. And I think, Jim, let's start with as far as the mentality. Where do the White Sox go from here? Because obviously in this really weird 2020 season, you only played 60 games. And whatever, as far as your goals were, as far as the strategy for this season, halfway through spring training, went to the wayside. And you had to make it up as you go. And the team had an opportunity to win the division. They didn't, but they still made the postseason in the expanded postseason. And uh, they lose in the first round in the three-game series. So what is the expectations of a 2020 Chicago White Sox team after their postseason loss? Well, they were the only AL Central to win uh, AL Central team to win a postseason game, and they actually matched. When you add in postseason wins, they matched the Twins with 36. So there's that. Uh, they had a better run differential than either team, so they should feel like they're on par with them. I think they're a little bit behind Minnesota, although Minnesota has decisions to make after the season. Their their winter is not cut and dried either. I think Cleveland has some big issues to work with when it comes to like Francisco Lindor hovering over everything. So. The White Sox should treat this as a reason to keep adding. I think they benefited from having a 60-game schedule by getting 
you know, if they lost the entire season and didn't know what Luis Robert could do, what Nick Madrigal could do, seeing their flaws, like they both showed that they can hang. They both showed that they both had things to work on too. Uh, Robert for most of September until the very end. Madrigal, his hit tool is fine. Like nothing's wrong with him at the plate. It's everything else that needs work. Uh, and that's probably a bit of a, a wake-up call for him because I don't think that's his base running or his defense has ever been questioned. So he should have a lot of uh, inspiration going in the postseason. But I think uh, the same problems, DH and, and right field are still there. Uh, and then just adding another pitcher, I think. You know, they have Dunning. I think it's nice to see him develop. I think Cease has shown enough to where hopefully in offseason in the lab will we'll write his issues to at least he can be a fourth starter. But it still seems like they're counting too much on Dunning, Cease, and Kopek all clicking to where they have that third starter that they need. And so it seems like they still need to add one more starter in between right field starter or DH. I don't know if they'll have the resources or want to devote the resources, I suppose, to addressing all those in a really serious, non-corner-cutting way. Greg, how do you feel about the upcoming offseason for the Chicago White Sox, and what challenges do you see for this franchise? Um, I kind of feel similarly to Jim. I, it's pretty straightforward, the spots they need, and I think I would prioritize getting a high-end right fielder, long-term right fielder, and long-term rotation piece ahead of a DH where you can squint and see Abreu shifting over there or Jimenez shifting over there or Vaughn taking over there, whether you know it's next year or in subsequent years. So I think uh, I would prioritize those other two spots. Um, I think, you know, in addition to sort of division of resources, I would, I would hope that they have resources to add, but the COVID obviously throws that all into whack as well. But I think, you know, they're going to need to demonstrate that the same skill for talent evaluation that they did in a previous off season where they hit on Grandall and Keiko as these two veterans. Right. And, um, they obviously missed on Mazzara and they missed on, you know, their rotation depth. So I, I think the front office still has a lot to prove when it comes to talent evaluation. So they are sort of fighting a two front war here where they have to evaluate and choose the right players and then have the resources to go get them. And then sort of compliment complicating matters is I don't know, particularly for right field, I don't know that the perfect fit is there. You know, I think George Springer is at the top of the market, but I, you know, your mileage on him might vary in terms of the, you know, the off, off the field, the cheating, or I guess the on the field, the cheating scandal, as well as him sort of, I think he'll be 32 at the start of next season. So I think uh, it, it's going to be a challenge for Rick Khan to find sort of two major pieces that fit the timeline of the other pieces that are already on the major league roster without subtracting from the major league roster, because apart from Vaughn and apart from Kopech and apart from Crochet and Jared Kelly, they don't really have all that much talent to trade with. So I actually right. think despite it sort of being the, the spots being straightforward, it's not necessarily going to be a straightforward off season. I'm with you, Greg. This is going to be a pretty challenging offseason, not just for the Chicago White Sox, but for most of the league. Because, and Jim, we talked about this. I don't think GMs have any idea whatsoever on what their owners are going to allow them to spend. Like, And for agents, you probably don't know at this moment in October which teams are going to be spending or not. 
because we really don't have the full picture of the financial impact of not having fans. And, you know, for the White Sox, they have some tough decisions. Alex Colomay was really good for the White Sox this year. Uh, obviously, his final number in 2020 was adjusted, uh, but he was scheduled to make $10.5 million in 2020. With the way that he pitched and now entering free agency, I'm sure he wants at least $10.5 million. Are you going to pay Alex Colomay $10.5 million to close games for you? Or is that money better spent elsewhere? Uh, James McCann. You know, you have all these White Sox fans, Jim, that take the $12 million that you were going to pay for Edwin Canacion and give that to James McCann. And, and I chuckle because when have the White Sox ever paid premium price for a backup player? Uh, never. So they're going to have a lot of competition for well, you know, James McCann. <laughs> not intentionally. That is true. <laughs> right. That's Look at the point. Jeff Kepinger contract. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. Not intentionally. Um, but yeah, that, that's just a couple of the, you know, the major free agents that the White Sox are, are going to probably lose. So that punches holes into your roster. And yeah, you'll recoup some money from Edwin Canacion. The White Sox have already released Steve Ciszek. Uh Gio Gonzalez is not coming back. That's a $500,000 buyout. You know, there's, there's a lot of roster holes here. And we don't know if Jerry Reinsdorf is going to allow Rick Rickon to uh, go beyond the spending that he had last offseason without having fans in attendance uh, and losing that amount of profit revenue. So there's just a lot of, I don't know, it's going to be very unpredictable this offseason. And I don't think it's going to be uh, clear cut, especially for the White Sox or for any team in Major League Baseball. And to add it, <laughs> to add to it, Jim, the agreement between minor league baseball and major league baseball has expired. Right now, there is no agreement between major league baseball and minor league baseball. So at this moment, Rick Hahn, Jim, doesn't even know what his minor league structure is like. He doesn't <laughs> even know what his player development structure is like. So after everything that happened in 2020, and now you're going to have media and fan and I'm sure internal expectations of to be a contending team in 2021, there is a lot on Rick Hahn and Kenny Williams' plate to try to figure out in these uh, short amount of months between after losing this postseason series and uh, heading into spring training in 2021. And then the CBA expires. And the CBA expires after the 2021 season. Absolutely. So, yeah. Uh, I was thinking about like when it comes to making trades, like if they can't devote the resources to a top of market free agent, then, you know, maybe they'll have the ability to work trades. But like, you know, say if they're trying to trade from their depth and Gavin Sheets, who had a good year uh, when he last played and is, you know, clearly redundant in the White Sox organization. If the White Sox want to trade him, like nobody has seen him all year. He didn't, he wasn't with right. the alternate training site. Like I, I assume teams know he's still large and plays first base, but you know, they just haven't seen what he looks like in his current age year and really won't have much of an idea, like just whether he's progressed, whether he's regressed, whether he's hiding anything injury wise or uh, out of shape. Like just nobody has really seen much of any of these players who weren't at alternate training sites. And even if they were, like Jonathan Stever, when he came up, he seemed like he wasn't quite the pitcher who was uh, ascended a prospect list last year. He wasn't hitting 96. He was like a 93, 94. Curveball wasn't as sharp as uh, alleged. So 
it, it's a case where just like some guys who might have been at the alternate training sites might not have had the year they needed either, whether because they were hurt and coming back or just wasn't the right environment for them. So when it comes to swinging trades, that's not going to be the normal thing either. So I, I really don't have expectations for how that's going to unfold. I think I was a little bit uh, su- surprised by how active teams were at the trade deadline, thinking that COVID and you know all these reasons we mentioned in terms of alternate training sites just weren't going to inspire teams to move guys, but turned out that there was quite a bit of activity, even if the White Sox weren't involved. So maybe I'll be surprised here too, but it wouldn't be if the White Sox had a relatively quiet winter and they had plenty of company. I, th- I think a lot of teams would have the same excuse to where just like, we don't know what our revenues are going to be. We don't know what our prospects look like. Mm-hmm. We don't know what other teams' prospects look like to where everything just kind of grinds to a halt. Yeah, and that's going to be very frustrating for – Again, fan bases across Major League Baseball. And again, the White Sox problems are not unique to themselves, Jim. That is something that you have mentioned many times over the years. And uh, I just want to plant that seed in White Sox fans' heads now. Uh, Not trying to curb your enthusiasm for the offseason, but maybe try to curb your expectations on what to expect. Because honestly, I think the right frame of mind is not have any expectations because there's just so many parts of the baseball business that are not settled. They should be settled soon, but we always say should. And it took forever for major league baseball to get the 2020 season off the ground. (laughs) So eh, it'll be interesting to see what happens this upcoming off season. But overall, uh, as far as this podcast episode, uh, because There are no general manager meetings. Uh, They're not going to convene at a hotel. They'll just have their Zoom meetings, and I'm sure that's what the owner meetings are going to be like. Uh, The winter meetings are in serious jeopardy. Uh, Those are probably not going to happen either. So the podcast schedule for this upcoming offseason is is not scheduled. Let's just put it that way. Uh, SoxFest also called off. Yeah, SoxFest has also been called off. Uh, so again, the 2020 and 2021 offseason is off to a fantastic start uh, as far as planning wise. But when news does happen, uh, we will have our emergency podcast and uh, we'll reconvene and uh, break those moves down. But as far as uh, recapping 2020 and putting a bow on it, Greg, I will start with you. How would you grade this season? What are your final thoughts on the 2020 Chicago White Sox? I guess I'd give it a B in that it was a good season. Uh, It felt like they left some opportunities on the table to me, both, you know, in this series and individually in this game, as well as in the way that the team was constructed. Uh, So, and and as well as just falling short of winning the division, that was very winnable. So I think, you know, uh, definitely the most enjoyable White Sox season in quite some time, but it's hard to not feel a little bit disappointed by the ending of it. How about you, Jim? I would say a B for the product and a for the fact that it got off the ground and stayed off the ground for the entire time. Like it felt pretty normal. Uh, it was nice to have expectations and uh, development. And, and while there was, you know, we, we saw like guys like Edwin Encarnacion never figured out Norma Mazzaro his season was lost and Moncada had uh, the COVID complications and just a lot of a lot of stuff that wasn't quite normal. Uh, overall, the arc of the season felt fairly cohesive and, and gave us something to talk about and everybody seemed to handle it pretty responsibly and there wasn't too much in the way of complaining. And uh, I think everybody 
on the field and in the White Sox organization handled the the crisis pretty well. So I would give that an A. And then the fact that it never came up, the no outbreaks, no issues, no, you know, just like product-wise, it was like a, a normal season. So I'll give them an A for that. And that uh, they made the postseason, got a few extra games, and I think they mostly achieved the objectives. And uh, the flaws, I think, are flaws that uh, we experience. So when it comes to expectations, yeah, I think it, it, it's about a B. Yeah. And, you know, in past seasons, we would have recap podcast episodes to grade how every position went and, and how everybody did. But in a 60 game sample size or that we had in 2020 and, you know, how players were impacted, like Yohan Makata being impacted by COVID, we'll skip that. But there's a lot coming down the pipe for SoxMachine.com. And again, thank you to everyone for your support. Thank you to everyone that has listened for this 2020 season as we now shift gears and start looking ahead to the 2021 season. I think that there's a lot of hope for the 2021 Chicago White Sox, and uh, it's a different type of conversation. We're not talking about rebuilding anymore. We're not talking about wishful thinking that maybe this team can turn the corner and compete. We have seen them do that. Now it's the next step, contention. And can this White Sox franchise meet expectations that will be pretty lofty going into the 2021 season? And uh, that coverage starts right away on SoxMachine.com. So to everyone that supports us on Patreon, continue to do that. There's a lot of content coming your way. And of course, the highly anticipated uh, as far as the Sox Machine offseason plan project. Are we going to wait until after the World Series to launch that, Jim? No, I think it's going to be probably during the, uh, whether it's the break before the World Series or a break during it, imagine that week. It's usually just, you know, give people some run up. Otherwise, it's only like two days before the offseason starts and uh, like to give some people some run up and, and some ability to let their ideas breathe. Yeah. So start thinking of your ideas. So you got a couple weeks here. Cots contracts. Uh, baseball Prospectus is a great resource. You can go to Spot Track as well and look to see what players are going to be coming free agents and what they were paid last year. Start thinking of ideas that you want the White Sox to execute in your 2021 offseason plan project. We'll have a couple of podcast episodes as well to discuss as far as our plans and our strategy of what we would like the White Sox to do. Uh, so there's definitely some extra content coming your guys' way. Uh, and also, we have some Sox Machine swag that you can purchase. Uh, so for our Patreon supporters, uh, there is the $10 tier, which you can get a our new Sox Machine coffee mug uh, that involves Dan Johnson having a great cup of coffee. Uh, we are we teased uh, as far as a, a new Sox Machine swag item. We're getting a sample, so we'll have to see how it looks, but I'm getting pretty excited uh, for our $5 and $10 uh, supporters on uh, Patreon, so continue supporting us there, so we'll have something that's really fun that we'll be hopefully sending out your guys' way as well. We also have the Sox Machine t-shirts as well that it seems like every day I'm shipping one out. Uh, so if you're interested, they're just $25 and that price does include shipping. And you have the opportunity to add a swag pack as well to get some Sox Machine coasters, buns, stickers, 
etc. Uh, we even have magnets coming as well. So who knows? If I get those in time, uh, you can add that to your swag pack as you order a new Socks Machine t-shirt. But that will do it for this episode of the Socks Machine podcast. Thank you to everyone that listened to the postseason pregame and the postseason uh, postgame shows during the 2020 season. I wish we had more episodes to talk about. But unfortunately, it was not in the cards for this 2020 Chicago White Sox team. And Greg, thank you so much for stepping in today to help out with the Game 3 as far as the pregame show and Game 3 of the postgame show. Of course, always a pleasure to talk White Sox with you guys. And again, that will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. You can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis and Greg Nix, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. When you rely on the internet for everything, you need speed that can handle anything. And now Xfinity delivers Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. Check out our amazing offers on internet and learn about the latest breakthrough from Xfinity. Wi-Fi speed faster than a gig. That's more than enough speed to power all your devices and then some. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today to learn more. Restrictions apply. Gig Wi-Fi requires gig speed and compatible x gateway. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed. Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.